Hello and welcome to the Greenfield Baptist Sermons Podcast. Each week we will be uploading the Focus Scripture and Sermon from Greenfield Baptist Church in Northeast Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us and enjoy. So the Word of God today. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Jude in Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, Have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Hmm. May God add the blessing to the hearing of this word. I'm back. Hi, Ken. Yeah, there we go. There's the wrong picture. Who can spot what's wrong in that picture? That's the siege of Constantinople. Does anybody know the name of the city of Constantinople? What is it now? Istanbul. Why is it named Istanbul? Anybody know what happened at the siege of Constantinople? Yeah. Netflix. Been teaching me a lot. Netflix. They need to learn a lot. You got to be careful learning history from modern sources because they wanted to liven it up some, so they're like writing in the characters. So if you're watching carefully, they bring the historians in and they talk about it. And then they tell you what history tells us, but then you watch the rest of the show and you're like, making it a soap opera, right? They add all these facets to make the uh, the characters more colorful. The siege of Constantinople was significant because numerous armies, numerous large armies, tried to siege that city many times. Greater than a dozen times, major armies came to Constantinople, surrounded it to try to take it down. Nobody could ever do it until this guy named Mehmet II. It wasn't too long before Columbus was discovering America, just to help you place it in history. Like, it's fairly late this isn't in 6 and 800 A.D. This is in the 1460s. I think there's a date on there. 1453? Thank you. The funny thing is there's an arrow up above that northern peninsula there. You see the arrow coming up over it? See that arrow? I don't know if you can see that or not. Over on the right. It says, fleet transported over land. It was a four-week siege. Halfway through, they realized they weren't going to win it if they couldn't get in the harbor. So they took the boats over top of the nearby mountain. Surprise, the next morning, there's the boats. 
That's a little bit of a problem when you're relying on that being your defense, right? Defenses. Oh, defenses are a fickle thing. This morning, I got to make sure I'm on. I think that's on. And I got to flip forward. This morning, I want to bring something to you, just a really brief thought. I hope it's okay I'm here again. I delight in teaching the Word of God. It is a wonderful thing. And if I misspeak, that's because I'm not all that. And I don't know all that. But I know that the Word of God contains truth, all of it. Every word is true. It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And so, I want to remind you in Philippians 3.1, Sunday school lessons are a great thing because we need to learn the same lessons over and over and over and over and over because we don't learn them. So I want to remind you, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. You're going to hear a Sunday school lesson today, and it's nothing more than that. I want to remind you what I first heard Pastor Elliot down in, in First Baptist teach. The Christian life is not a complex thing. It is a hard thing, but it's not complex. What we're commanded to do is not a complex thing. So this morning, we're going to rip some battle pages out of Hezekiah's book. Now, I'm going to break you into three groups, and we're going to do it very uh, strategically. If you were born in the month of January, February, March, or April, put your hand up. Okay, that's the first third of the year. You are group one. Group two, the next four months. That would be May through August. May through August? Yeah, gotcha. You're group two. When we're gone to Scripture, now get your Bibles out of the pews. You're not getting off that easy. Group three, September through December. Who would those be? There's Hannah. There's Jason, Brian. Okay, if you were in group one, get to Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. If you were in group two, go to Jeremiah. Oh, but it's in 2 Kings. We're going to touch on that. And if you're in group three, you're going to read out of 2 Chronicles according to Ezra. So while you're getting there in your groups, I'm going to talk about why in the world did I say it that way. Our first account, there are three parallel accounts of this story. I love it when you see things in Scripture multiple times, like the four Gospels, and you get these different perspectives. Now, this is going to be intriguing. Isaiah is the only firsthand account of this, okay? And I'm going to put this in modern American terms. If you were reading a history book in America, Isaiah is going to be our starting point in 1776 as George Washington. Picture that. In 1776, George Washington is not this really young guy, but he's in the leadership position. Think of Isaiah in that. Now, we're going to fast forward to the time of Jeremiah, and it's not perfect in balance, but fast forwarding to Jeremiah's time, it's like going to Abraham Lincoln, right? These two guys never knew each other. They didn't talk, and Jeremiah could read the writings of Isaiah, just like Abraham Lincoln could go back and read what George Washington had accounted. And Ezra... He's way later, way later. Like, if it was George Washington and then Abraham Lincoln, Ezra is 50 years further than where we are. Huge gap between Jeremiah and Ezra. I want you to get that in a sense of it. Isaiah is inside the city we're going to be talking about. Jeremiah is in the same city generations later. And he's compiling the notes he comes back through official court documents. He reads the records of the kings. 
He reads what Isaiah wrote. He gets these sources and compiles them. We have the books of First and Second Kings. History attributes that to Jeremiah, writing it, I believe, I believe he's writing it, right before the fall of Jerusalem. And that doesn't happen in today's passage. That happens, you know, 150, 200 years later. Ezra comes back way later, and Ezra's compiling First and Second Chronicles. And guess what? Ezra's canonizing the Old Testament. He gets the law, he gets the writings, he gets the prophets, he bundles them together, and Ezra goes, this nation of Israel, this is the word of God. Okay? It should be noted, it's really interesting when you read this story, Isaiah is the first-hand account, and actually it seems like he gives us the least amount of detail, which, which is kind of odd, right? We expect the guy that's there on the scene to give us all the details, but in actuality, we get the most details of Hezekiah's reign from none other than Ezra and Chronicles. And Ezra gives us huge amounts of volumes about Hezekiah. So this guy, Hezekiah, we ought to understand a little bit about who he is. Hezekiah is one of the best kings of Israel, of Judah, the southern kingdom. It's actually noted that, and, and it's really funny to catch the quote from Ezra, he says, there was never a king like him before or after. Like, he's almost on this part with David. And we talked about David, like, putting him on a pedestal, and that's the measure of a godly king. Hezekiah is noted to be that godly, and he does some amazing things. So today's passage is really about this king that is extremely good. He's good for the kingdom. He's good for the people. He's good for the Jews. He's good for the true religion, the worship of Yahweh. He's good for all the right reasons. And Hezekiah finds himself stuck in a situation not of his making. And he is under attack, not just a little attack, a huge attack. And the enemy is coming. So as we look at life and we realize the enemy is coming, it's at our doorstep, that's the moment I want to take you in today and say, what do we do with life when the battles are starting? Because that's right where we're at with Hezekiah. The battle is starting. It would be super easy to go to Ephesians. We know this passage. Super good. Really solid. Nothing wrong with looking at this for preparation for battle. Putting on the full armor of God is an excellent picture of how we need to prepare. Because every one of these steps, it prepares us for that spiritual warfare that we face. Now, I want to point out at the start of this story with Hezekiah, um, I think it was the first group, I want you to go to Isaiah 36. Would somebody care to share? I would like you to read Isaiah 36, verses 1 through 5. Could I have a reader? Vicky, nice and loud, please.
Thank you. So this guy shows up at Jerusalem. This guy. Now, I'm going to go all the way back. This is probably one of the first things I have written in this Bible because I got it shortly before it. Harold Duff in 1995 in this sanctuary taught me this lesson. I have no idea who Harold Duff is outside of the fact that he was a pastor that Sherwood Sawyer brought in to do a series for us. And Harold Duff taught on this type of Satan because we see in Scripture that there's types of Christ. And he said, this is a great outline of the enemy's plan. This is how he attacks you. So I want to point out, in verse 1, he attacked the fortified cities. First thing he does is he comes out and takes out your defenses. So as Sennacherib comes into Judah, after he gets done smashing the northern kingdom, he goes, you, 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 you. You're all going to be problematic. I'm going to take you out first. And he does. And Hezekiah is watching his kingdom topple from the capital. And the cities are falling one after another. That is the enemy's first step. Take out every defense that you have. He will hit your health. He will hit your marriage. He will hit your pocket. He will hit your schedule. The enemy is good at that because he's had a few thousand years of human history to watch us and knows how to hit us. Don't take that lightly. The second point, he attacks the heart. He goes right to Jerusalem. Now, I wanted to title this the Siege of Jerusalem, but I think that's a little bit misleading because the army never actually gets there and sets up a siege. This is the Siege of Judah. He's taken out the whole nation, and he's finally heading to the capital, and he goes for the heart. Now, when he goes for the heart, he takes step three. Down in verse four, he says, what are you basing this confidence of yours on? You can't resist me. You've got nothing. Feel familiar? And finally, down in verse 5, on whom are you depending? What are you placing your trust in, you fool? And he attacks, and he attacks, and he attacks, and he attacks. And it's relentless because he knows what buttons to push. Remember, Isaiah's inside this city. Interestingly enough, we're going to see later, Isaiah has the ear of the king. Isaiah is one of the counselors to the king. And Isaiah's watching this, and as he's recording it, there's a section right in the middle of the book of Isaiah that's really strange. It's all prophecy, 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 and then we get multiple chapters of history. It's like a history lesson right in the middle of Isaiah. This is the history lesson. And then he goes back to many messianic prophecies. The plan of the enemy is that. Let's take it all out. Now I want to flip to the New Testament for you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's not just the day by day. That's you understand you have an enemy that wants to undermine your life. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's a little scary. Really, when you stop and think about it. That's a bigger force than we tend to, to realize that we've got against us. And First Peter, Peter reminds us, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. You let your guard down, the lion comes in. You leave the back gate open, the lion comes in. <laughs> he prowls around to see who he can devour. That's just not a light statement. 
Now, after we look and recognize, of course, the enemy has a plan, our response typically is, we need a plan. Let's make a plan, right? Hezekiah makes a plan. So I want to take it to Second Chronicles. Who was in that third group? <clears throat> Matt? Oh, I love it. You guys. Second Chronicles 32, 1 to 5. Would you, would you read that for us, Matt? Okay, thank you. Thank you, that is absolutely apparently needed via the Spirit of God. Now, would you read out of chapter 32? Three verses, then I went, that's not where I was heading. But that, that comes into the story. Don't miss that. There is t well, seriously, we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that exact section, but yeah, you were one chapter early, Matt. 32, 1 through 5. Yeah. yeah. Now, the funny thing is, is actually the first passage you read is exactly what's being spoke of in verse 1. It says, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done. So you filled in all the blanks that we desperately needed. Thank you. Hezekiah sees it coming. Now, mind you, this is not in the days of CNN where they've got this camera and they're following the front, right? Word's coming back. Word's coming back in an area that is smaller than the size of New Jersey. The army's here, the army's here, the army's here, and they're advancing. They're coming, coming, they're coming, they're coming. Oddly enough, they bypass Jerusalem. Partly it's a mountainous area. Partly there's other fortified cities, okay? But as he sees it happening, they huddle. What do we do? How do we prepare for this? Now, I love Hezekiah's conclusion. It is so strategic. It's downright brilliant. I love Hezekiah's responses. 
So as I've been watching this deal with Constantinople and the siege of it, and watching what the generals did, I look back and I go, my, how they were good students of history, and they learned these things. Water sources and walls and weapons. So first, let's talk about the walls. It's really easy for us to picture like Jericho. It was a walled city. It's fortified. But there's differences between walled cities and walled cities. For illustration, Constantinople had in excess of 13 miles of walls. They had a wall after a wall after a wall, and between every wall they had this really nice area known as a killing field because they had towers on the walls. Oh, thanks, Hezekiah. They put the towers on the walls. Why? So they could see? So they could shoot at their enemies. And when we go back to Hezekiah's great-grandfather, this guy named Uzziah, Scripture says Uzziah had wise men build machines that could throw large rocks and hurl large arrows, catapults and ballista in Uzziah's time, right? Three generations before Hezekiah is doing this. Hezekiah knows how to protect his city. And he looks around and he goes, my defenses have been left unkempt. They go out and they repair the wall and then they build a new section of wall and then they take the new section of wall and they add towers to it. And as I was digging this week, I find this thing called Hezekiah's Wall in the maps. Like, oh, all the way at the very top of that map, there's this little line like, here's the old city. And then they draw this new one. Now, you have to understand Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city on a mountain. The Temple Mount is toward the very, very peak of it. But the older city of David, it spreads downward to the south. Okay? Now, look on the east side, on the right of that picture, is the Gihon Spring. If you live in Jerusalem, you need water to live. And the water source in Jerusalem is, number one, outside the city wall, down the side of the hill. And I read about this Gihon Spring, and I picture like, well, I understand it's an arid region and a city needs water to live. Historians approximate 20 to 25,000 people living in the city. That's a lot of water. How much water do you use in a given day? Multiplied times how many households to have 20 to 25,000 people. Hezekiah looks and he goes, we got a problem. Because if they come to this city and do what they've been doing, all of our water is on the outside. And who gets the water when you siege a city? Those outside the wall. And then it got fascinating to me. I can picture if you were far south of the city and looking back to Jerusalem, you look up across, you see the city, and you go, there's the spring, there's our city, but over here is a pool. And that pool is right about the same elevation as that spring. And the city's in between the two, and it's on a prominence. You can see the ridge, the lines of the topography there. The city peaks up out, and the spring is on one side, and the pool's on the other. I don't know who the guy was that first thought of it, but somebody said, you know, if we carved a tunnel from that side to that side, we could take that spring into the city, and then it's inside the wall. It's a third of a mile through solid rock in the mountain. Out come the pickaxes, what, in the lanterns or flashlights? A third of a mile. The deepest point underneath the city is 150 feet deep. They bored through the side of a mountain under 150 feet of rock. And they're wondering because they found the inscription where the two tunnels meet. They started at the pool, they started at the spring, and they start chiseling toward each other. A third of the way in from one side, they made a wrong turn. Because they stopped, they backed up, and they corrected the course of the tunnel. How do you know underground where you're tunneling? 
They surmised that it was rock soundings from them pounding on the rock above so the guys could hear it underneath them. And eventually, they meet in the middle, they break through, and somebody that was literate carved it into the side of the stone, and there it sat until the 1800s when they found it. And news got out, and somebody snuck in and stole it. And they caught that person, they recovered the artifact, and it now sits in, ready, Constantinople. It is in Istanbul in a museum, in another city that was famously sieged. Hezekiah's efforts to get that water into that city were paramount. Nobody knows. There's no record of how long it took. They're theorizing. Could you do it in four or five months? They're theorizing that because they're like, what's the fastest you could possibly do it if you knew where you're in trouble? Most of the people are like, probably three or four years, because that's about how long the Assyrians took to come down through Israel and down through Judah could you imagine chiseling with iron axes for years to bring that water into that city? That's dedication to a cause. And lastly, the weapons. So I already mentioned the things they put on the walls, but Hezekiah pours into what he knows he will need to defend himself. Don't let that be lost on you. The efforts that he's taking to prepare for the plans of the enemy. We need a plan. Here was the bigger plan. Isaiah, somebody from that first group, chapter 37. Anybody in that first group? Isaiah 37, verses 1 through 4. Anybody? What? You're going to make me read it? Oh, you're awesome, Vicki. Thank you. Thank you. The guys in charge look at each other and they go, uh, yeah, this is bad. This is really bad. The field commander comes forward and he brings a letter from Sennacherib. Sennacherib was notorious for his ruthless war tactics. And he delivers a letter that I'll paraphrase. Dear Hezekiah, I'm going to turn your city into a dumpster fire. And he's done it to a couple dozen cities. There's not much hope. So Hezekiah does everything he can, and then they talk more. Okay, we've done everything we can. What are you going to do? Are you going to move the mountain? Already dug through it. And they come to a conclusion, and that is, we're going to go to God. They come together, they pray, they have fellowship, and they seek the word of the Lord. Oh, by the way, inside the city there happens to be this guy that has a direct line to God. His name's Isaiah. Quick, go get Isaiah. Wow, what a response. What an amazing response. Now, I'm going to go back to the three guys that are writing these things, right? We have Isaiah that's writing it firsthand, Jeremiah that's writing it later, and Ezra that's writing it way later. Ezra's point in writing Second Chronicles 
was to point back and say, always remember how faithful God was. God carried us the whole way. But when we get back to Jeremiah, he's in the middle. Jeremiah has a different perspective when he's writing a lot of his accounts because he was another prophet. And a lot of his prophecies are, yeah, remember that God's faithful. Remember what you did. So we're going to go to 2 Kings. 2 Kings. Somebody go to 2 Kings for me. 13 through 17. Okay, I'll read it. Chapter 18. 2 Kings 18, starting in verse 13. Jeremiah is really good at bringing us back to the humanity of this guy. Hezekiah did not walk on water. When I read this part of the chapter, I'm like, oh, dude, you screwed up. You screwed up hard. This is right before Sennacherib comes into the nation. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Sounding familiar? So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Hezekiah tells the enemy king, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay you whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That is a truckload of cash. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. Ah, oh, Hezekiah, what are you thinking? You're bartering with terrorists. This guy already is like destroying everything. He's coming against your, and you're like, I'll give you money. Be nice to me. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. I want to weep because he sends the bribe. He sends it. And then guess what Sennacherib does? Hey, thanks for funding my war effort. Literally, he takes the money, gives it to his troops and like, let's go, boys. I want to remind you in the midst of this, be mindful of every step. Sometimes we panic and we kick it into the, I'll do anything I can to keep the peace mode. Oh, they're still right and wrong, right? You go to the temple and strip off the gold and be like, here, let me give you stuff from the temple of God. Oh, here are the gifts that were brought to the temple. I'll give you the silver. I can picture some of the older advisors going, hey, kid, how did that work out for you? Really, right? Hezekiah at this point, I have it written in my Bible somewhere. He's in his early 30s, I think. Might have been 29. Like, ooh, big mistake. Don't think that you can't have a misstep in the midst of these battles, right? Hezekiah gets put on this pedestal, but there was some whoops going on. Now, Paul reminds us. He's talking about the totality of Old Testament. This is why I love to go to the Old Testament. Paul says these things, Old Testament things, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So the next time any of you are in a siege in Jerusalem, now you know what not to do and what to do, right? That's what Paul's saying, right? Just in case you're in a siege in a city, no. Paul is telling us that all of these things teach us lessons for our lives. And I like his reminder at the end. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Because remember, the enemy has gone after your defenses 
and he's put you in a vulnerable place, and he's told you you have no confidence and trust in the Lord. It is easy to slip in that moment. So we get to this balancing act, like, what do I do with the dangers and difficulties of life, and how do I respond faithfully and have this plan, and Lord, what do I do? What do I do? You have decisions, you have catastrophes, you have life happening in front of you all around you. What do you do? So, what I love in all of this, at the end of it all, God's like, well, I got a plan. Now, it's not that God didn't want Hezekiah to take steps and actions. And you're going to see a lot of things that God would point you toward are exactly what Hezekiah did. First, in 2 Chronicles 32.1, there is a verse that seriously speaks to me here. It is such a simple statement. It's the first half of the verse. 2 Chronicles 32.1, after all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done. And that was the section Matt gave us. Hezekiah told the whole nation when he took over, go out and smash down all the false altars, tear down the Asherah poles, bring worship back to Jerusalem and do it in a true and right way before the Lord. Hezekiah did all these things and then his nation gets sacked. I wrote in my Bible next to it, don't confuse faithfulness with success. Don't, don't do it. If you're doing good, it's not because of your faithfulness, it's because of his faithfulness. And just because you're being faithful doesn't mean that things get rosy. It can be hard, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, early in his reign, was so notable. He went after everything righteous. But if you go back and read about his dad, oh my, what a mess. And I'm convinced Hezekiah's mom, she had to be an awesome lady. She had to be, because he didn't get it from dad. And he knew the way of righteousness. And interestingly enough, Isaiah the prophet was a counselor to dad too. And dad didn't listen to Isaiah, but Hezekiah did. So number one, do not confuse success with faithfulness. Number two, we already read this section, prayer, fellowship, and the word. I told you this is going to be a Sunday school lesson. We used to joke as kids, the right answer is always God, Jesus, the Bible. That's not true. Sometimes the right answer is prayer, fellowship, and the word. Prayer, fellowship, and the Word. I think we get really fast why prayer is important, but I don't understand why our hearts don't run to it. Some of us have mastered that. Work on that. Prayer should be our first defense, not our last defense. Prayer should be an object of faith that we cherish to grow and encourage, to say the Lord said He listens and He will respond. I want to say that again. The Lord said... He listens and he will respond. When we won't pray, that means we don't believe that. The word we find easy unless it's tough to extrapolate. I like to tell people the word doesn't tell me what type of car I should buy, right? But the word tells me how I should be a steward. The word tells me how I should approach life. The word is a fundamental block in the start of our defense and God's way to victory. But this fellowship thing, now, this past weekend, I was reflecting with the guys in the woods, the fellowship thing. And as I was watching some of the interaction, uh, I've come to find, I, think, I, I don't know, I'm not sure if boot camp's more for the guys or the kids. But I'm watching the guys interact. 
And I heard this statement yesterday. When I met this person, I wasn't too sure how we were going to interact. And I thought, by the end of the weekend, we're going to be friends. It was awesome. Fellowship in our life does a strange thing. And we would run to this verse. This is correct. This is true. As iron sharpens iron, so... Say it louder. One man sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That is fellowship, right? But what are we doing then when we're not fellowshipping? Conversely, we're making ourselves more dull. Like the fellowship with believers enhances our ability to face these things. That is part of God's plan for you. Fellowship with believers at Greenfield. He gives you each other for this purpose. Now, the final point as I close, and this is oh so hard. Second Kings, I think Jeremiah says this best. Hezekiah was 38 when all this was going on. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm totally in the wrong book. I'm on the wrong slide. Isaiah 37. So many papers, so many books. When I was preparing this lesson, I had my fingers in all spots of the Bible, flipping the pages. I couldn't keep up with who was doing what. Isaiah 37, verses 30 through 32. You get to the end of the story. The enemy has done everything he can to make him fail. Hezekiah has done everything he can to pull the pieces together. And then God steps in. Isaiah 37, starting in verse 30. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. I don't know if you understand what Isaiah the prophet brings back. He said, this is what God just said to you. You see, Hezekiah takes the dumpster fire letter. letter. He takes it to the temple. He lays it down in front of God. Curious if God actually had to read it or not. But it was a great symbol, like Hezekiah lays it out in front of the Lord. And God sends Isaiah back with his response. And the response is, Hezekiah, it ain't going to be fast. It's three years there. Just, I got it. Everything's good. But it's going to take three years. I mean, God, if you got a plan, I want it now. <laughs> and Isaiah says, the Lord said, it's all good. Just go take a seat for three years. Now, some of us, three years would be pleasantly fast, right? Sometimes there are circumstances that it isn't three years, it's 30 years. But the hard part is waiting on the Lord. That's the big plan at the end, Hezekiah. Just wait, wait for me. As the boys used to say, watching Clifford the Big Red Dog, wait for it, wait for it. And then, one night, history's great on this. As I read it, I just chuckle. Um, this, remember, the siege isn't happening at Jerusalem. The, the field commander shows up a couple times, right? He's talking over the city wall. Go and read these parallel accounts. The major army is about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, Lachish. And one morning, they wake up, and they go out to the Assyrian camp. And there's 185,000 dead corpses. 
Secular history tells us, and there was a lot of rats, and the plague hit the camp. In one night, 185,000 troops died. And guess what? Sennacherib packs up his toys and goes home. Yeah, yes, a particularly virulent plague. And it sweeps through the camp in one night, and 185,000 troops are dead. And the threat's removed. But remember, it doesn't go away in a year. It doesn't go away overnight. That army still needs to leave, and there's still a whole lot of remnants of, like, destruction. And so the Lord is reminding Hezekiah, I still have a plan. I am still on the throne. I am still in control. So I want to leave you with this reflection and observation. That as the Lord is working through his plan, um, how often do we reach in and go, well, no, God, it would go better if it went like this. That's our way, right? That's not the way of Christ and God. The way of Christ is submission to the Father's will, right? It's hard to be patient. But waiting on the Lord to see what he does requires the time in which he's going to work through it. So I want to encourage you in the face of those things. I want to encourage you to return to prayer and fellowship and the Word. And if you're not utilizing those tools, you're setting aside the very best weapons that the Lord gives you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are willing to step into our lives and work in amazing ways. I thank you for your goodness and your love, Father. I thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the enemy's plans, in the midst of us doing what we can, you still have a bigger plan for us. So I pray that we would learn to wait patiently on the Lord, trusting that you are who you say you are, that you love us and hold us close. Protect us and carry us, Father. We love you. Amen.